Welcome back to Not Alone, a podcast about the intersection of faith and mental health. We're so excited that you're listening. Today's conversation is about individuation. Individuation, which is a five-syllable word and can be hard to pronounce, is simply our process of forming our own personalities and our own opinions independent from the family and friends who have shaped us. To better unpack this process and its effects, here are your hosts, Michael McCord, Evan DeYoung, and Lindsay Geist. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Not Alone podcast. We are so excited to be here with you for another lovely episode where we explore faith, mental health, and just to what extent someone named Lindsay can corral two people with undiagnosed adult ADD. So we are so thrilled <laughs> to have another episode together. <laughs> so, so we just had some audio issues, and now, now when we got started, Lindsay looked like she was completely frozen, but I could see her blinking just barely, and I thought we were having issues again, but Lindsay, it's good to see you. Evan, good to see you. She was, it's great to see you guys. We, she was like a POW blinking help. On the Zoom call. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> Save did, me from the two. Did I did I tell you, Lindsay, that that my wife Emily uh, listens to our podcast and her favorite moments, she says, are when Evan and I go off the rails and she can just tell that you're like, oh my gosh, where are they going? Because she <laughs> says she feels like that every day of her life with me. So it's nice to share that with her, I guess. So Okay. Speaking of going off the rails, we should probably all introduce ourselves. Well, perfect. That's perfect. I am Evan. I get to hang out with these two lovely people. I'm joined by Lindsay Geist and Michael McCord. As always, I'll allow them to introduce themselves very briefly. Hey, everybody. Lindsay Geist back again, a licensed clinical social worker and a pastor in the North Georgia Conference of the Methodist Church. Hey guys, Michael McCord, and I am a pastor in the Methodist tradition as well, and um, work with college students in the state of Georgia and beyond. Oh, that sounds ominous. <laughs> it does. It <laughs> is. <laughs> and I hope we're all thinking about college students because this is the week when they're all going back. So uh, exactly. for a lot of us, and uh, whatever back looks like for our students, keep them in your thoughts and your prayers because it's a lot. And for our professors and our faculty and staff and administrators, it's a Crazy. Yeah, and, and and by this is the week they're going back depends on what state you're in because everybody all over the southeast some have started last week a couple weeks ago week to come it there's college Let's say this is the season of back to school for our college students and uh our grade school students just think about our students and teachers i think it's probably a good good time to think about them they got everybody's trying to figure out what this new world of school looks like in the time of COVID. Uh, do you go in person? Do you go virtually? Do you do a hybrid thing? Everybody's trying to figure out life right now. Yeah. If you are a parent or family member, you are go- trying not to lose your mind figuring out where everybody's supposed to be at what time. Oh, yeah. Everybody's going through life with an emotional millstone around their neck for the last five months. So we are... <laughs> that was a heavy analogy. Yeah. Well, I mean... <laughs> Literally, I mean, that's how it feels, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I, I feel like I'm wearing a weighted vest at all times. And the, the brief moments of normality make me feel like 
normal again. And I'm like, oh, this is what it feels like to not be just ambiently stressed. This is awesome. So if you're in that place, we just want to welcome you because it's tough. Uh, it's, it's There's really room at the table. Now. Come sit There's down. There's a lot of us here. So welcome. Right. In, in the words of the name of the podcast, you are not alone. So we're really happy that you found yourself here. If you're listening to us in the future, uh, we are in August, uh, going back to school in the 2020 global pandemic. We're hoping that this is the only one that we have to have. Um, I've seen uh, once in a generation economic collapse twice now in the last 10 <laughs> years. So I'm hoping this pandemic thing uh, doesn't happen again. So we, in that spirit, are going to look at a concept that has to do with what happens when college students go off to school. Now, in America, we have set up a society in which around 16 to 18, we've kind of extended the adolescence into college. So the expectations are kind of half adult, half teen, half somewhere in between, depending on the individual responsibility of the student. But there is something that goes on in every family and in every single person's life that is universal to the human experience that is well illustrated by this season of going back to school and transition. And that is this idea of individuation. So individuation is what, Lindsay? I, I barely pronounced it and I had it written out in big letters on my notes here. Can you coach us through just exactly what this term means? Individuation is the process of kind of finding yourself and your own identity. We see it happening most often when uh, adolescents are leaving home and going off to live on their own for the very first time. Oftentimes that is in college or a first apartment or a new job or something like that. Um, And that's when we see the biggest moments of people finding their own identity away from a former group that is often our family, um, but can be anytime we're trying to figure out our own separate identity from a community. And so a lot of times uh, college students, uh, you'll see it happen more often at that age, but it usually starts a little bit earlier. Uh, So if you're a parent, uh, you have probably had your teenager uh, push back against you on some of your rules. And it's like, I'm grown, I'll do what I want, or don't make that curfew for me, or I'm going to make this choice and wear these clothes and don't mess with me. Um, That is teenagers starting to do the work to find out their own identity and do an individuating in this moment. And we see it happen, like I said, in adolescence all the way through young adulthood. Okay, so now is this something that is done? Is this process complete when you hit a certain age? Like it's kind of formed or is this the kind of thing where we have little moments of individuation in our lives as well where we you know, maybe realize that the way that we're being represented or the way that we have roles at work or in friend groups are off from what we perceive ourselves or maybe we've changed from the projected path that others have put us on and so we have these kind of like little disconnects. How does that play out? So it's not something that only happens over, you know, an 18-month span or three-year span, and then all of a sudden, poof, it's all solved. Um, it is something that we still do work as time goes on to figure out parts of our, of our identity separate from other people. But the first time that we've really had to figure out our identity uh different from a group of people that it's been prescribed and kind of 
decided for us all along is often this young adulthood of Mm -hmm. leaving the home around 18 years old. Um, So that's when you have the most individuation happening in those few years. Okay. So my first question would be internally, how do we understand this process at work in our own lives? I mean, I can think back to times that I kind of like moments where I exerted myself and it seems like we can correlate some times of conflict to be the things that kind of pull those moments out where I say, this is a time that I was exerting my independence. I was individuating. Is that a, can I do that? Is that a, Mm -hmm. I can, I can make it into a gerund. Okay, great. I was individuating myself and it creates some friction. And I think parental authority and like individual liberty within development seems to be what I heard you say. One of those times that is common for us to see those moments happening. Yeah. I, I think that, what we probably just notice it more often in conflict. That's when we are individuating in a way that's so different from kind of our home community or the previous community we were in or family unit that it can cause some conflict of, oh, you're not just going to go along with the way that things were always done. Um, And that's not not meant in an oppressive way. It's just the first time that you have or someone has pushed back against the way things have always been done or a family unit operates. Like most things that you bring up when we talk about, I feel like these things sneak up on me personally. Mm -hmm. Like it's not something that I prepare for. I say, oh, I can, I'm, I'm individuating. I can feel that I'm becoming a different person slowly. So I should prepare myself to have these conversations with the people in authority over my lives and that are close to me so they can help me understand the change that's happening inside of me. It feels more explosive and sudden and violent in the way that that kind of just like hits. Well, it's not like we sit around and go, what are my values and how do I want to express those? Right. Yeah. It's usually something rubs you the wrong way and you go, no, I don't want to do it that way. And then we can only later normally look back and kind of say, oh, that's because I was trying to figure out where my values laid and all of that. And it, it didn't quite fit in everything else. Um, but often when we haven't explored our feelings, um, and really named them, then it's easy to explode to just try to get it all out of our system. I mean, again, why everybody can use a therapist because it's helpful to process like, why did I freak out about that one thing? And the therapist later goes, probably because the importance of that person's values and yours weren't matching anymore. Michael, I think you find yourself in those situations a lot with family and friends, and you're just that kind of person that just kind of tends to arrive with people in those moments because of the way that you value. I hang out with people in crisis. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) You hang out with a lot of people that are trying to figure out who they are. That's right. Including myself. I, you know, I just want to be very transparent with you all. And I'll talk about this. I want to talk about this a little bit later because I think that there's, there's lots of like that, that becoming a, a person, a whole person is a lifelong journey. And there's these moments that we mark mm-hmm. along that journey where we sort of separate from our family units, become uh, an individual, and then we move into adulthood. And then, and then we move into maturity 
and to, to wholeness. And we, and then, and there's a lot of cycles that go back and forth through that too, but I'm still on the journey to uh, maturity. Um, but <laughs> uh, you said it, not us. <laughs> um, and that's why I complete love, what we're talking about is why I do what I do. I've given my life to serving college students because it's the moment you, you have to interact with somebody where they become their own person uh, or at least begin that real, that real significant break from, from their inherited identity to, to, to the identity that they're shaping of themselves. And it's, it's the most powerful moment to walk with somebody in their life. (laughs) Um, And what I'll say about that in, in, in sort of thinking from a parental perspective, it's got to be one of the hardest moments of a parent's life to watch their child become their own thing. Because there are a few things that happen in that. One of them is they may not live into the, the imagination you had of them. I think that as parents, we envision our child's lives, our children's lives as something. And we can't help it. It's by our very nature. I mean, I, I can, I, without even thinking about it, begin to imagine what it'll be like for my children's wedding day and what it'll be like for them to be kids. And, and they think about it too. My five-year-old son was talking about how he wants to be a dad today. Um, he doesn't really know what that means. And that's you, know, you weren't going to spend time explaining the birds and the beats today. <laughs> no, I did that. I'm leaving that for Emily. That's Emily's job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, um, but you know, so so that individuation doesn't line up to what we see as parents. What we thought was going to happen. We come to love them and understand them in their own way, but it's still a sense of loss uh, that we have to sort of reckon with. I think what you just said is really important because it's easy to create tension when it feels like rejection. Like often a child individuating feels like they are rejecting the old. And it's not always that intentional. It's more them trying to find their own voice, their own thoughts, um, their own experiences. Uh, You see it. Now, I'm going to give an example that is not supposed to take us down the political road. This is just an example of the season we're in. Michael, your eyes just went wide. Like, where are you taking this? I'm very excited. But so we're raised in families that have often probably overtly or not expressed their political views. And so everybody just kind of in the family, you often talk about it like we all believe this in a lot of families. Well, then for the- And it's just the way it is. Yeah. And and again, that's not meant in a ma- bad way. It's just how things get talked about in families. Like we as a unit believe this, the end. Um, and so then when individuals get of 18 or older and can start having their own political opinions, well, I mean, you can have them way before that, but you can voice them in a voting setting past then. It, create, it can create a lot of tension because- former family units will say, well, you didn't vote that way or you aren't saying the same thing on this issue as me. What happened to you? 
And, and what happened to us is not that something bad happened. It's that we actually took the material and information and used our thoughts to decide what we thought about it, which may align with the way our family unit was or may not. Hmm. Let me give you a good example of kind of what that looks like in an apolitical but potentially theologically messy thing. That is, mm-hmm. at, I worked at, so I worked at Mercer University. It's a small um, uh, Baptist uh, institution in middle Georgia. Um, I went there as a student, I graduated and I worked there 10 years. And, uh, and by work there, I, I ran a Wesley Foundation. It's a ministry of, that, that Methodists have created for college students. Um, and uh, anyway, so I worked there for 10 years and always, so every student is required to take either a New Testament or Old Testament course. And on the beginning of the second week of class, I, you could almost time it. Students would start to pour into my office who were in Old Testament because they would find out for the first time that there are two, there are in fact two creation stories. Mm-hmm. And they have grown up in their church, very avid church going kids, and grown up in their families and their churches and never knew that there were actually two tellings of the creation story right back to back. They had, they had been melded together because what we do as a church and what we do in our family systems is we try to construct things for our children. We children have, you know, actually children have really limitless bounds when it comes to deconstructed thought. But what we do is we try to construct nuggets of our story, whether that's a theological story, a political story, a, uh, an ideological story, a community story. There's all kinds of like stories. Um, and we try to construct them and hand them off to our children as guideposts for them to become humans and, and, and adults. And then when they come off to college um, and they find out that their constructed story is being deconstructed, it is mm-hmm. a, it, it is a powerfully challenging moment uh, and it runs the gamut in terms of like emotional response. Like some are just like, oh my gosh, the Bible just came alive for me. Like I've never heard anything like this. And, and you could just see their brain sort of just exploding mm-hmm. their, their hearts. Like everything about them is just exploding with joy and excitement and like new knowledge and new ways of seeing the world. And then the other polar end of that is, I'm completely freaked out now because everything I'd always been taught. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing is true anymore. And, and the reality is that somewhere in the middle of all of that, right. I mean, that's what life is like. And so that's a great, for me, uh, we also, so, so that happens the second week by the first of the next week, uh, because students may go home for that weekend and they start to tell their parents, there's two creation stories. And then the parents who's, who've never experienced that in their life are then calling me and saying, what are my kids being taught at mm-hmm. this school? So there's this cycle that we would go through uh, can, as, as people became their own. Can you articulate just very briefly so that there's not a gap in like understanding when you say two creation stories, 30 seconds or less, what are you talking about? So in Genesis chapter one and chapter two, there is a telling of our creation and the, the, there's really, it's, it's really the sort of the, if you took the same creation story from two different perspectives and, and one of them very sort of pragmatic day by day kind of construction of how we were made. And then the second, um, which, which some people call the Yahwistic tradition 
Uh, the first being the priestly, the second being the Yahwistic, if it, 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 these sort of two vantage points is very like very intimate kind of there's, that's where you see um, the creator kneeling and, and molding and breathing breath and in, into the life of, 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 of Adam, of humans. Uh, and so when we are taught that, we meld them all together into one story. And, and that's how we conceptualize creation, which is not harmful, but it is also helpful to say there are different ways to look at how we were formed. Mm-hmm. One being this pragmatic day-by-day systematic approach to creation and, and sort of the rule of the creator in that. And the other is this very intimate, messy creation story. And, and that that's ways to view how we came into life. We do the same thing with Christmas story, right? The birth of Jesus is told differently in each narrative. Yeah. I was going to say the synoptic synoptic gospels. I mean, the, the three gospels that we meld all of it together. And I even, and I don't know if this And then happens. John starts with like the logos and like Yeah, and I don't know if this happens start of, for either one yeah. of y'all, but even though I know that we have done that in our traditions often and melded several stories together, I can open scripture sometimes and read one of the stories and go, "Wait a minute, where's the extra detail I'm looking for?" Or why didn't it say such and such? And then it has to dawn on me. That's because it was in one of the other gospels and I have read all those stories next to each other. And so assume they're one story, (laughs) which they are, but by people that are remembering very different details. All right. Now you got to explain what synoptic means. What is the synoptic gospel? What does it mean that there's three of them? You got to, you have to explain it. You can't have seminary terms that we can just, because it makes us sound smart. And if we don't answer them. Okay, Michael, you're the best at succinct, like one sentence answers. So go for it. Oh, you brought it up. Go ahead. No, I just, I'm like, I'll flounder too much. So all these gospels off of the, they believe that it's coming off of one potential source cue that's out there. See, that was more than I needed to say. Um, three, three gospels that are interwoven that they think use the same similar material, but are being used in slightly different ways. So they're called synoptic because they can kind of run side by side each other. So yeah, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of. Oh, that was the important detail that I probably forgot. That's right. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Which ones they are? (laughs) Have lots of similar stories and a similar construct. And so there's, uh, there are people, there historians that believe that there maybe was a shared resource. That's what they call. That was Q that I referenced. See, why you give a few more details that I'm like. Great. This is great. It's your vantage point, my vantage point. and and so that's what they call the synoptic gospels. And then John is sort of this has some stories in common, but takes a very different approach, which is beautiful in this particular example. Like so, if you if you think about the creation story I just talked about, there's this there's this uh, very sort of orderly uh, presentation, and then there's this very more creative, intimate creation. In some ways, John kind of is a very romantic uh, kind of approach to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, very intimate kind of approach. So I think the beauty of this is, and and I'll say, and let me just, again, I'll send you down another rabbit hole if you're interested in this, is Richard Rohr does a lot of, he's, he is a, uh, a Catholic um, Jesuit leader who, who, who teaches online and has a great podcast, but he talks a lot about um, 
the deconstructed life. So, so there's, there's ordered life when we're young, things come to us in these packages, these nuggets. Um, and then as we, as we enter into adulthood individuation and we see the world, we start to deconstruct those things. Uh, and then we start to see our faith very differently and our person very differently and where we live in the world very differently. And then we start to reorganize our life after that. And I think that's, I think it's a good example of what we're doing, what we're talking about is that moving from adolescence into adulthood is a, is a time where we're moving from a very ordered world where things seem very simple and understandable. And especially if you end up going into a college where there's lots of international students, there are people who think very differently than you, then all of a sudden your world is, is, is widened in ways that you've never imagined. That would be sort of the disordering of the, 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 the stories we've been told. And then you start to reorder yourself and remake sense of your faith tradition, of your ideological beliefs, your political stances, all those things that we've talked about. Um, and so I think that's a good way to think about this whole idea of becoming yourself. I think that when you guys talk about the blending of stories in our minds, I think that sometimes we think that we're supposed to create knowledge like some kind of like Encyclopedia Britannica, like I'm pulling this part of this book of my life story off the shelf. And, and now I'm going to read this article and it's kind of compartmentalized. And it seems like the human experience is a lot more fluid and blended in the way that we remember things and the way that it's attached to emotions. And we give certain things weight at some point in our lives. And then we revisit that topic. And with the new understanding that we have of the world, it either has less weight because we've moved past it or grown from it, or it actually has more weight because we're taking it more seriously than something that we had dismissed in the past. And it seems like individuation is the kind of thing that is going to happen regardless. It's not, everybody does it. It's, it's a universal human experience mm-hmm. uh, that that's going to happen. So my question is this, as an individual, how do I understand that this process is happening in my life and what role do I have as an individual to steward this in my own heart? Like what does God, how does God want me to approach this universal human experience? Hmm. That's a beautiful question. With empathy. (laughs) My go-to answer is with empathy. (laughs) And I I mean, that is true. (laughs) Which in all sincerity, it's empathy for yourself. Like it's, it's grace um, to allow yourself to change and to understand that changing the way you see the world and interact with it and understand yourself within it is totally a normal experience and that, and to embrace it. Uh, and to not, not to not to fear it. Um, from the parental perspective, I think empathy and grace must abound in your life as you deal with your children's expression of individuality, and as they come into their own human being. And 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 I think, like Lindsay mentioned earlier, I uh, have worked with a lot of parents of college students over the years two who will call me to try to understand what's happening in their student's life. And, and a lot of times when a student uh, picks up a new belief, for, first of all, I should say, they might just hold it in the hand for a little while. It may not be a, a set belief, they just might play with it for a little while to see if this fits to them uh, or, or practice or personality or something, you know, they, they're experimenting with their self is that when it's different than what the parent had, they feel like it's a rejection. And so you're going to have to some humility in all of this as a parent, uh, watching your child go through this and some grace for 
your child making mistakes along the way or not expressing themselves clearly or well, uh, maybe sometimes with anger and frustration, because that's the emotion we tend to go to um, that's most accessible for us. Um, and then, and then empathy as a way to try to understand what your child or what others around you are going through as they're trying to become a person. Hmm. So, so let's stay focused on the, on the individual internal for now. Uh, Cause I think there's two parts that we need to explore. One is the individual internal and the other is what is our responsibility to help recognize and steward this process in others. Um, and they're, they're interwoven for sure. But what is, what is my responsibility and what are some ways that I can intrinsically understand this in order to articulate it in conversation? So how do I bring up that this is happening inside of me with somebody that I care about? I'm thinking about outside of a parental relationship because I think that's the most obvious one. I'm thinking about in marriage, right? So for me personally, my wife and I have been married 10 years and I am a different person and I have been individuating this entire time that we've been together in a romantic relationship. But sometimes it's hard to bring up those topics about the ways that we feel like we're changing or the ways that we understand the world are changing. And so then you get these moments where you've been living life together in proximity for so many years, but then you, you kind of open your mouth and you feel far apart. Now, the reality is you may not be far apart, but you don't really know how to articulate that. And you're concerned, and I get concerned that there's gravity to the words of how I explain how my mind and my heart is changing over time. So how do we approach and steward this in a way that we understand it, but then can articulate it in a way that is well-received? I think the the potential for conflict and tension around our process of individuating seems like something that can seem daunting and scary. So we just don't do it. We just let it lay fallow until there's enough conflict that it erupts forth, you know? I think some of it is, um, and and we say this ah, so often, that it comes back to dialoguing. I think part of where this pushback gets really hard is that when you have had some different thoughts internally for a long period of time and you hold them in and then all of a sudden one day they come out and you go, I don't believe that at all. And, or you're so wrong or whatever kind of crazy thing we yell when we're feeling, emo- you know, the strong emotions in the moment. And um, some of it is us being transparent with ourselves. Like, okay, maybe what everybody else says, we, whatever this collective we is believe, I don't know how I feel about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then dialoguing with other people. I've been wrestling a little bit with this. Um, I think part of why individuation uh, can get explosive is if people feel like they're not allowed to express any wrestling or difference in beliefs, um, then these thoughts or experiences that you're trying to wrestle through when we're younger we feel like we can't talk about, we can't say, Oh, maybe I don't agree with what so-and-so said. Um, and when we don't feel like it's safe enough to talk about it, then it can come out in really explosive, terrible ways. And so we just need to work better with one another of how can we be open to dialoguing and open to people thinking differently without, 
us automatically judging them or saying, we all believe this, period. Mm. Mm. So staying on the yeah. intrinsic. Sorry, Michael. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I th- in, and Lindsay probably would agree with this, the vast majority of, of um, marriage counseling not that i i'm not a i'm not a therapist i don't do counseling but but in the in the clinical sense i do it in in the spiritual sense um as a pastor and as as a friend the the majority of times when a couple comes to me to seek some assistance a lot of times it's about that very issue evan where where one one person has 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 um evolved over time and the other person has not at the same rate or in different directions. And, and mm-hmm. that's where, where you find marriages that, that maybe find themselves so far apart that they can't come back together. It's kind of like, it's like they, they missed a turn on a, on a road trip and, and, and there, some of them go, you know, three hours before they realize they missed that turn. Uh, of course, now we have navigation. So it keeps telling you, you missed your turn and redirecting <laughs> you. But, but I think, which is a good example. So a navigation is an assistant. It's a partner. It's a colleague going along with you. And I think that when you, as you're in this life, having confidants and friends and people who are helping you to broker the, the old you with the new you and how you, are interacting with other people is really a vital thing. And so what I mean by that in concrete terms is if you're married, you are not, you, you are not going to stop evolving. You're not going to stop changing the way you see the world and understand yourself because that's the natural order of things is that we grow. We continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if, if there's not someone helping you and your spouse grow together, um, even though you might, continue to take these paths differently and become different kind of humans. If, if the connective tissue between you isn't there, then you'll find yourself in a place where you, where you can't be together anymore um, potentially. And, and so that's why I think, I think that third party is really, really helpful. Yeah. That romantic partner, you know, I think, cause I think that applies itself to just relationships in general. Marriage is obviously kind of a pressure cooker of commitment, uh, but we definitely see that in, you know, dating relationships, long-term romantic partnerships, deep mm. friendships, family relationships. It, it all kind of comes together. Lindsay, you're looking like you got some wisdom. Interesting. Well, an interesting thing about individuation is that there's, uh, it is easy. It, it is sometimes easier to individuate the farther you are from your community or individual family unit. Um, because you don't just automatically slip back into that community or you don't have that day-to-day conflict and you get to navigate things more on your own. Um, We see individuals with helicopter parents have a really hard time to individuate because the parents Mm -hmm. will never let them be by themselves. Um, I think about my own college experience when I went from Atlanta out to Dallas, Texas, and I really had to figure things out on my own pretty quickly because I didn't know anybody didn't have my family around nothing. And so I really had to figure out who I was and where I fit and how I managed things and what I thought about it all and how I was going to make decisions because I was so separate from other people. Um, And because I was so far away, it was able for people had an easier time thinking of my identity as different from my family unit. Not that we had different ideas, but like I was no longer a kid 
and it was easier to see me as an independent person in some ways uh, mm-hmm. because I wasn't at all the family gatherings in the same way yeah. and everything. I, I just became very separate. Um, you see extended families individuate a little bit more when they, uh, and I kind of see individuation as growing pains in a good way. Uh, families and extended families uh, find their own identity when they don't all live quite as enmeshed with each other. Um, it's, uh, it is interesting how families with uh, individuals in their mid twenties um, can kind of see you as a grown person. If you get married versus if you're a single person living on your own, they can kind of see it as, Oh, like they're grown up and they're a separate identity in some ways when they get married, you belong to that family unit now versus Mm -hmm. if you're an individual that starts thinking a little bit differently, it's like, why did you reject me? Mm -hmm. Um, That can cause some conflict. And so all of it is about us trying to find ways to navigate and name what is my own identity separate from what other people tell me my identity is. That's really good. I think that that last phrase is really, really helpful. Uh, what is my identity, not what what is the identity people have given me? And um, I, I see a lot really of tension, yeah, especially with students when they try to. It's, it seems necessary to have some help in individuating. Uh, this seems like like most things in life, something that we can't just do by ourselves. Uh, and it's really hard to get total perspective internally. And I see a lot of heartache come from when individuals attempt to do that in a relationship that isn't receptive to workshopping it. Like you try and have the, like, I just need to figure this out conversation with somebody who feels the need to reinstill values back into you. So they try and shape you instead of listening. Um, And I have a lot of conversations where there's a lot of heartache there because we try and (laughs) get a conversation started with somebody that we love and we trust that just hasn't made that relationship at that time a place that's receptive for going broader and thinking of it conceptually and creating a safe space. And then when we have that conversation, we're met with forced direction or rejection or disappointment. It seems like there is a lot of pain there in those moments. Well, I, first I want to say, I think that um, individuation happens regardless. It, mm-hmm. it will happen. It's, it's just a matter of how you as a person, you as a family system, handle that in whether it's healthy or it's unhealthy, right? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be painful or anything like that. It There can, individuation can be very healthy and not full of conflict. And it can be super empowering of like, yes, we're excited that you're finding out who you are. And, and it doesn't have to be a hard thing. Sorry to jump in. I just, when I saw you say no. that, I'm like, yeah, we can, yeah. we can talk about it as a really great, healthy, Love lovely thing. Well, I think that's a great transition too for us to, uh, to be able to talk about what 
our role is to help facilitate that with others. Like, what is our responsibility as believers and followers of Christ to create space and allow that work and God's work in people's lives to happen naturally and to make our places of conversation and relationships safe for individuation? First, normalizing. So, so much of what uh, where anxiety is introduced into people's lives is they feel like they're not normal like something's wrong with them. And so uh, a young person who's becoming their own and starts to question the stories that they've been given, they've inherited through their family units and their communities, um, begins to question things and thinks something's wrong with them. So for example, I might have a student who begins to explore their faith tradition in ways they never have before. And that questioning or that thinking makes them think there's something wrong with them spiritually. Um, for doing that. And there's there's something bad about that because the church hasn't told them this is a normal expedition. Like this is a normal process for you to go through is to to figure out faith on your own and how it intersects with your life and how you're going to be and live as a faithful person. The same same goes with, with family units is to say it, it's okay. It, it's perfectly normal for parents and teenagers to not see eye to eye. Um, and it's okay to start to let go a little bit about those things and not try to construct your child's life, especially go, going into college. And then the third uh, in, in normalization is to, to normalize for students, uh, young people to understand that this is what's happening and try not to reject wisdom in the middle of all of it. Because I, I, what you were specifically talking, I was thinking a couple different paths. One of those is that, again, not uh, just because of the, the world I live in, College students uh, begin to change their direction, their vocational direction, what degree program they want to, what job they foresee in their life. And that's different than what their parents wanted. What often, what can happen in that situation is the parent can become very hard nosed and say, no, you're going to be an engineer. You're not going to make any money being a history major. And you need to focus going to colleges about making money. Now, the response to the young person is either adherence. Okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna put aside what what my passion is to follow the pragmatic path, um, or perhaps the student decides I'm gonna go hard nosed into my passion with with disregard to some wisdom that maybe my family's sharing with me. And then there's this third way, where where parents and students live together and say. You parents say you need to find a, a path that gives you to some, some ind- financial independence. So you're able to make it as a family and, and fulfill the things that, that outside of just your, your, your study interests. And then the student is like, but I really have this passion in history. And they work together and figure out a new academic path, a new, uh, a new uh, professional path that might be able to give them some of both of those things. And I think that's just kind of a, maybe a crystallized example of what the different ways we can approach individuation as, as both parents and persons in the middle of it is, is sort of how do we handle and aim for that third way? And, and what if we see individuation as uh, us spending time to explore who God created us to be? That instead of just uh, having our identity only rooted only rooted in previous stories of these are your people, 
Uh, also looking at our own gifts and abilities and skills of who are you specifically in all of this? Because both of those things can be true. We can still belong to a community, but find our voice belonging to a community. Yeah, if scripturally thinking, if, if we follow our scriptural path, the entire biblical narrative is about people changing, mm-hmm. about them becoming and the arc of the biblical narrative is that, that humans recognize that they are created by God. They live in a constructed faith tradition. They inherit those things. And what you'll often see is then we try to go at life alone because we're individuals. We're individuating. And we think we can make life on our own. And that's a very important part of discovering who you are and understanding who you are. But then on the other side of that arc, is the realization that no one is alone Mm. and no one can be alone and that we are better when we live together. And so you see people's hearts and their minds softening as you mature into life and you understand that I am both an individual and part of a community. Uh, And those two things can coexist at the same time. Why does it seem like the church takes this idea though, that like the path of following God is narrow and that, individuation is the degradation of the values of the narrow path. Like that is, that is the way that the church is regarded in society is as we change and try and figure out who we are and make mistakes and learn and grow. The church is regarded as this bastion of morality and values that people are treated like they are deviating from the path that there's no way that you can build values. You can only have your values degraded when you leave the church by experiencing the world. And so when we live life and the reality of the world, when we get exposed to people that are a little different than the value system that maybe we grew up with, when that doesn't match up with the church and the church doesn't have a mechanism to help us engage with that, it's just viewed as something to own that can only be departed from, right? We love that, like train up the child in the ways that they will go and, you know, they're not going to depart from that path, whatever that scripture is that I just butchered. It's, it seems like that is the attitude is that like we have our kids and our families and our society on a tightrope and any deviation from that tightrope is the complete moral degradation of society. And so we're telling students, get on the tightrope or be gone. There's no, there's no way for you to re-engage with this process of God in your life. So by individuating, you run the risk of stepping off that tightrope. So, so sorry, but see ya. So can I mention why uh, I'm really wrestling with this topic lately? Yes. Okay, I was like, y'all are just staring at me like, no. like maybe that was a rhetorical. <laughs> you have permission. After Evan's metaphor last week's episode, I think you anything is game in this episode. Oh my goodness. Um, so part of why having this dialogue is so important to me right now is that we keep referencing these milestones of when you might have these moments and opportunities to separate from your family and find who you are. In the midst of the pandemic, we are, I mean, all of that is messed up. So you have a whole bunch of people that aren't able to leave home at all that we're planning on leaving. Um, And that includes even, you know, uh, 
elementary, middle school, high school, in some of them finding their own identity, they're all at home right now. And so they do everything with the family unit. Um, We're all spending a lot of time with our family units. Am I right? Or away from them because we're worried that we're some kind of biological terrorist. So we're not near them. Yes. Um, And so we're not individuating that we're not starting some of that individuation that people would get or exploration because if kids are not in the school classrooms, that is not me saying what choice is the right choice. I'm just saying one caveat. Um, We have a bunch of people that wanted to go to college that maybe college is starting hybrid or they're taking a year off or all sorts of things and they're not leaving home. Um, Or let's go back to March. All these individuals that left home were trying to find their own identity, find themselves, all got forced back home. And so all this work that they had been doing on their new, um, not new selves, because it's not new. It's just like finding and owning yourself. Then you get placed exactly right back in this old environment. Mm. And the tension is there of you trying to find your identity and independence versus you need to fall in line with the way that this always was. Um, So I even think about, we were talking um, before we started uh, about the timing of, we were talking specifically about certain colleges and uh, what's happened with them. Some of them are already shutting down, opening, you know, all that's delayed opening, all sorts of stuff. And you have people that left, went to college campus, prepping to individuate and find their own selves and having hyped themselves up, especially freshmen. And then they're going right back home. And that entire uh, part of their life is paused in some ways of how do I find myself? Or I started to find myself and now it doesn't quite fit with my family. So I kind of have to put that on pause or I have to live in this tension under the same roof or all sorts of stuff. So people are just not getting the same uh, kind of developmental process that so many others have gotten along the way. Thinking about the church and the narrow is the way I think is actually true. I think narrow is, is the way because but 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 I think the church has misunderstood that what that means. There are not many people. It, it is a small percentage of people who live in a sense of balance between being both holy loving, holy yourself, and holy in community with others. That's a narrow path. When you think about um, the, the greatest commandment: love love God and then love your neighbor as you love yourself. So the three greatest commandments are to love God, to love yourself, and to love others. That is a narrow way. That is a very narrow way. There are not a lot of people, not a lot of communities that have been able to walk that path in a way that's really authentic. What the church has done, uh, and I don't don't necessarily blame it, because Jesus saying that to us is really helpful because that gives us this big picture for you and I, Evan, we relish in like big pictures and ambiguity and we live inside of that like world. But Lindsay likes lists and she likes order. <laughs> I don't know if you found this out about us yet, uh, but you, you know, 
She wants to know on day one of creation, this happened. Day two, in, in now I'm not saying that there's, there's a, this is not, these are not absolutes, but there are personality types. There are, there are humans among us <laughs> who want to know what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love yourself? What does it mean to, to love neighbor? And so scripture, much of scripture and much of like the, the, the thought, the theologians, those people who think about God around that have been working to create laws and rules and order to try to explain to people what, it's, what it means to love God, because that's big and ambiguous and hard to rationalize what it means to love ourself and what it means to love others. And, you know, I think in the grand scheme of things, I think progressively like the church spends most of its energy trying to help people understand what it means to love God. And they don't understand that to fully love God also means I have to love myself and spend enough time helping people understand that loving yourself in a healthy way in all the mixed up, messed up ways that you are, is, is a, a linchpin, a central component to understanding how, what it means to love God wholly too. And then if we fully and understand what love of ourself is, then that's the only way we begin to love others with that same sense of genuine nature. And, and so the, the thing is, is that Jesus teaches that these things live together. They're intertwined. You can't separate them. Um, and the church has worked really hard uh, for really good reasons to try to make it a, a, a pragmatic stepwise mechanism. And because loving God is such a big thing, we spend most of our time there. And, and I think that's why you get what you described as, as legalism rule following, because that's easier than the messiness of really living faith and understanding yourself and unpacking the messiness of us and looking, looking at God with some sense of humility and awe and hopefulness in our relationship together. And how are we kind to our own messiness? I mean, our messiness of, it, it's going to be kind of give and take of like trying to find our own identity and trying to understand God in this all. And it is going to be a really messy process. And how can we learn to love that and help care for one another as we're trying to figure it out? I think those two points are a fantastic summary as we kind of wind down. Any other closing thoughts before we close out? Be kind to yourself, especially now. Um, I think it's really, really easy uh, to be overwhelmed about all that you're lacking. I think especially I hear people um, who who haven't been, you know, in a worship place, in a physical place, and feeling like they're more distant than ever from God's presence because they haven't been able to to be there with people. Just just know that God is right there in your midst where you are. That you do not have to go to a physical place. That God is with you. You're not alone. And then be kind to yourself in the sense that you need to learn how to learning to love yourself is one of the most powerful things you can do to loving God because you are God's creation and, and you're worthy of love. And then for those of us 
who continue to struggle with that, we can also at the same time start maybe by loving each other and being kind to others. Um, these are difficult times. It's a universal experience. All of us are trying to become our own person in the middle of a pandemic and where it seems everything is uncertain. Let's try to be kind to each other along that journey. Can I feel the question? Who, who is that go- ghost voice? <laughs> oh, my word. There was a fourth this entire time, and you didn't know. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our, our producer, Justin Patton, has has joined us. Welcome, Justin. He might he might cut his own voice out of this recording, too, to be determined. I, <laughs> As I'm thinking about these things y'all are talking about, I, I think of moments in my life where I realized that my thoughts and opinions have been mostly impressed upon me by groups and I feel like I need to start an individuation process to really know how I feel. What are your thoughts on starting that process? If you ever have, if you're in that position where you feel like you need to get down to what you really think and you're not just sharing the opinions that have just been pressed on you. That was a powerful question. And, and I'm grateful that you asked it because I think that that's one that probably a lot of people have wrestled with. I, I always think that um, talking to a therapist can always be helpful, a safe space to be able to wrestle with your own thoughts and your own experiences, uh, separate from anybody telling you what to believe or what to think. And also talking to your pastor. There are so many wonderful pastors that can sit and listen and say, it's okay that you're wrestling and asking questions. And that is loving to God and a loving way to care for yourself. Um, But seek out somebody. If you're trying to figure it out and know where to start, um, don't feel like you have to do it by yourself. Just uh, find somebody else to sit in it uh, to help ask questions to help you uh, think through it all. I'm not an expert by any means. Uh, That should be very obvious at this point. But throughout my life, I've had this process of these times of solitude in in prayer where I uh, write down everything that I believe or I think I believe. And rather than letting it just be what uh, I think the clinical term is brain spaghetti, where everything is all jumbled up together. And when you pull one thread, it pulls everything else uh, and try and space it out. And then I took all of those beliefs and I asked myself, why? What is the justification for why this exists? Is it, is it a reality thing? Is it a Bible thing? Is it something that I was taught that I maybe I don't believe that as part of who I am now, but maybe it needs to be right. Like where do I see this evident either in the world or in my life? Because the reality of the world around me and the way that I'm interacting with it matters because I'll, I'll just stay in theory space forever. But to some extent that it can't be our only existence. It's supposed to give us intellectual freedom to be able to reason. And I have a friend who's a pastor who's really wise and he and the faith communities that he serves, he says that we're pursuing a relationship with God through both faith and reason. That, that God gave us both the ability to have faith and the ability to reason. And 
that was a really liberating statement for me because I felt like I had to leave reason at the door to have faith and that there wasn't a relationship in tandem between the two. Uh, and then taking that as a means to facilitate conversation with those people that I trust, the therapists, the pastor, the friends, uh, has been something that has been incredibly power for, powerful for me to be able to articulate just exactly what that process of individuation is for me. I think it's a really excellent answer for a non-expert. Something about a squirrel and blind <laughs> acorn. I think I'm going to give, maybe because Emily and I talk about the going sort of back to that Richard Rohr, like the deconstructed phase. I think we both solidly identify in that place. So we're sort of reorganizing our spiritual house. Um, and I say that as a pastor, I'm ordained in the Methodist tradition. I've been a leader in, uh, in the church for a long time. Uh, and so I, I just, let me just openly admit uh, as a, as a ordained pastor in the United Methodist church for 20 years, I've been ordained that whole long, but I've been in ministry for 20 years. I am deconstructing my faith tradition and reconstructing it all the time. Um, and as you talked, Evan and Lindsay, as you talked, I thought of, of um, my suggestion for, for someone who's, who's struggling, who's str- who wants to set that stuff out there and look at it is um, Maria Kondo, the, the one that the joy of tidying up, yeah. I think if if you haven't seen this, it's a, it's on Netflix and you can watch it. And she's she's a, a Japanese woman who's an organization um, guru. Guru, yeah, she's she's a specialist in that. I, I don't the Mets melting all kinds of things right there, but but she's amazing uh, uh, at helping people organize their lives. And one of the tricks that she says now, um, I'll, I'll say we've done this not the not to full tilt, but we've done some of this is to take all the stuff out of your closet and put it pile onto a bed and just look at it just see it just see the mound of stuff that is there and then uh, when you go back to putting each piece back is to hold it in your arms and decide whether it gives you joy and if it doesn't give you joy then get rid of it now this may be a dangerous suggestion from an ordained person to someone, to anyone, to myself maybe, is perhaps what we should do is take our spiritual house, our theological framings, maybe our political framings too, maybe our story, our personal narrative, our family story, and set it out on the bed and just look at it. Look at the stories that we've collected, the belief systems that we've inherited, and understand that they have provided us. And that's one of the things that she does before. I love it is she first gives thanks for all of these things and hmm. for this beautiful place we call our home. And, and it sort of creates a sense of spirituality and getting rid of stuff, of purging yourself, of things that are no longer bringing you joy. Um, and so what if we just put our spiritual houses out on the bed and we looked at it, we gave thanks for all that they've done to make you who you are because your family's faith story your church, your home church, those things made you who are you today. They're integral parts of that, but they may no longer 
bring you the same level of joy and meaning as as a new tradition that you've picked up or understood. And so maybe you hold each of those things in your arm and say, which of these really brings me joy and fulfillment in my spiritual journey? And then put those neatly back in your closet and, and, and use those to reconstruct your new self um, as a whole person. And, and, God, and make space for God to give you new things to bring you joy. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. If you have a clean, organized closet, you've got room for new things and you can celebrate them and not be burdened by the things that, that are shoved in there. And we're not talking about things that make you happy. We're talking about joy. Like it's, it's, I think that there are really difficult things that we're called to do as Christians. And one of the things that is the most difficult thing that we're called to do as Christians is to change. Mm-hmm. It's to let go. And God expects us and grow to be sanctified and change and grow. And that is the sanctification process. Amen. Amen. That being said, thanks, Lindsay. Thanks, Michael. Once again, our podcast is produced by Justin Patton. We want to say a big thanks to Justin for all the hard work that he does. He also did the intro music as well. If you want to get involved in a project and you want to get our team on it, you want Justin's uh, wonderful attention and talents uh, to a project that you have, you can reach out through any of our channels. And we'd love to get uh, you connected with him or anybody else on our team to help you out in producing that. I want to say a special thanks to everybody who's listening uh, and everybody who has shared. We've had a lot of conversations with people who've been sharing the podcast. Uh, That really means a lot to us. This is something that we find a lot of value in, and uh, it really means the world to us when you share uh, about the the conversations that we're having here and and the the journey that we're all on together as we listen. Once again, Rating and subscribing to the podcast is really helpful for us. It helps us to understand who uh, our audience is and who our listeners are and helps us to really uh, get good feedback from you in order to to shape the decisions and the direction that we make in the future. So uh, just like PBS, this podcast brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next episode. Thanks again. Thank you again for listening to Not Alone. If you enjoyed this conversation and want others to tune in, make sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Also, if you have questions for us, you can message us on social media or you can even email us. You can find that email address and our social media handles in the description of this episode. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.